Our sermon text is Proverbs chapter 14, verse 21. You can find it on page 346 in your paper Bibles. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. This is the word of the Lord. This summer, we are studying the book of Proverbs. And the last couple of weeks, we've been talking more generally about wisdom and what wisdom is and where it comes from. But now, for the next few weeks, we're going to look at some specific verses in Proverbs and try to apply that wisdom. And today we have a verse before us that deals with probably one of the most challenging commands in all of Scripture. The command to love our neighbor as ourselves. As much as I try to make that command a priority in my own life, right? I'm a pastor after all, but I'm a Christian. This is something we're all supposed to prioritize. As much as I try to prioritize, I find this is a struggle. Even the most basic aspects of relating well to my neighbors can be hard. Uh, not too long ago, uh, one of our neighbors that lives right next to us came over to our house to hang out with Melissa. And while they were having a conversation, she got this look in her eye and Melissa's like, what is it? You need to say something? And she said, well, I just, I don't think Logan likes me. <laughs> she's like, well, and Melissa, knowing that I, that is certainly not the case, well, what's, what's wrong? And she's like, well, you know, a few, a few months ago, I passed by him on the street and I said his name a couple of times and he didn't even acknowledge me. He didn't even look up at me. This was months ago. She never even mentioned it. And here she was thinking that I had a personal grudge against her. So, of course, you know, I found out about this. I'm heartbroken. And it, it's taken me months now just to work us back into her kind of thinking I'm okay. Right? Even the most basic aspects of relating to our neighbors can be complicated. Love for neighbor can be challenging on, on a surface level. But the true implications of love your neighbor as yourself are much bigger than that. The true implications of this command are much more comprehensive. And so this morning, I want us to dig into this proverb, and I want us to, to mine the depths of it. I want us to find out all that it has to tell us, and I want us to ask three questions of this verse. I want us to ask, who is my neighbor? Then I want us to ask, how do we despise our neighbors? And then I want to ask, why is this such a big deal? So, who is my neighbor? How do we despise our neighbors? And why is this such a big deal? So first off, who is my neighbor? A few weeks ago when we started the series, you might remember, I talked about how the book of Proverbs is poetry. It's a kind of poetry. So that's why when you look at the, the lines, when they're printed out, they're all kind of jumbled up looking. It's, it's the way the, the translators are letting us know that, that this is Hebrew poetry. And the way Hebrew poetry works, you got two lines or more that are working together to make one point. So let's look at our passage, Proverbs 14, 21. It starts out, Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed... Okay, we'll just stop there really quick. Now, if you were going to complete the sentence, if we hadn't already heard it when Kitzner read it, if you were going to try to complete the sentence, it says, 
Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who... Well, it seems like maybe he would, he would say something like, but blessed is he who doesn't despise his neighbor, right? Or blessed is he who loves his neighbor. But that's not what it says. The author says, whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Why does it say that? Well, to understand that, you need to remember who wrote the book of Proverbs. And you need to remember why this book was written in the first place. Who wrote Proverbs? Well, we know that Solomon wrote quite a bit of Proverbs. He wrote the majority of the book. Um, but there's also other authors that get mentioned on different pages. We, we see that there are people who were uh, noblemen that were in King Hezekiah's court. We see there were people called the wise men. So there's these other people of wise men and other noble class people who help to collect these wise sayings. But all of the Proverbs are written with the goal in mind of training the young. Especially with training the young in the ways of wisdom. So if you go back to the original context, the original reason these verses were written, it was so that these people of nobility could show their students truth. And the truth they want to communicate here is not just how you're supposed to treat your neighbor. He's not only showing them how you should treat your neighbor, but he also wants to show who your neighbor is. And if you know your history, if you've read your Bibles, and you know your your Bible history, then you know that by ignoring this verse by not taking this wisdom to heart, this actually led the children of these nobles to destroy the whole kingdom. You can find the story in the book of 1 Kings. It's the story of Rehoboam, Solomon's son. He took over after Solomon's reign, and it tells us that right after he took over, the people of the nation came to him, and they asked him what kind of ruler he was going to be. They said that Solomon's rule had become harsh. And they wanted to see, Rehoboam, are you going to be the same way? Or are you going to be different? And so Rehoboam, what, what he did, it tells us he went and he found the old wise men in the community and he sought out their advice. And he said, how am I supposed to deal with this? And then he heard what they had to say. And then he went to his buddies. He went to the other young men, the audience of this book. He went to the people who, who, were, who were the students of these teachers, and he said, what should I tell them? And here's what they said. They said, this is how you should speak to the people. Tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Terrible advice. <laughs> but he took it. And it says right after that happened, Jeroboam led a revolt that split the kingdom in half forever. Now you might hear that story and you think, well, well that guy was a jerk. <laughs> who, would, who would do that? That was such an obviously bad decision. I would, if I was in that position, I would never do something like that. But the truth is, that instinct of Rehoboam to see kind of the noble class as separate 
from the rest of the people. That instinct to see some people as our neighbors and other people as the outsiders, it's probably one of the most common stories in all of human history. So our New Testament reading this morning was from Luke chapter 10. And we're going to look at that a lot today, so you can flip there if you like. But Luke chapter 10, it tells us about a lawyer who went to speak to Jesus. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? That question, Who is my neighbor? That is the question that is at the heart of this proverb. That is the question that exposes the sin that is lying underneath the surface of so many of the problems in our society and also so many of the problems in the church. It's that question, who is my neighbor, that draws a circle that includes me and includes the the people who I can relate to And it excludes everyone else. It's the circle that divides us between them. And and we do this all the time, right? We do this by our culture. We do this by our race. We do this by our income, by our education levels. We do it by our theology. We do it by what street we live on. We even do it by how long we've lived on that street compared to other people. Who is my neighbor? It's the question that's underlying so many conflicts in our world. It's the question that's at the base of the events in Ferguson, Missouri, or the shootings in Orlando a few weeks ago, or the bombings this morning. Who is my neighbor? That's a question that we see asked and played out every day here in Boston. And even right here in this room. I think who is my neighbor is is a question that has real implications for us and how we, we do this. Who must I love and care for? Who must I prioritize? Where's the line? Who's in? Who's out? Well, as you look at this proverb, the poetry, it lines up pretty clearly. It says this, Overlooking or mistreating the poor is despising your neighbor. That's what he's trying to say. To the wealthy, noble classes that first received this, God says, Your neighbor is not just the people who live with you in the king's court. It's not just the people who share your common upbringing. It's not just the people who are like you. But in fact, it's the people who you think are least like you. 
Those people are your neighbors. For them, and for us, the answer to that question, who is your neighbor, is pretty simple. And it is, it's everybody. And that's really scary. <laughs> because if, if everybody is our neighbor, then that means we are all guilty here. If everybody is our neighbor, that means that we, too, we despise our neighbors. Well, what do I mean by that? How do we despise our neighbors? This is the next thing I want us to get into our minds this morning. How do we despise our neighbors? Okay, so I recognize I'm not really rocking the boat here when I tell people that we need to love everybody. Right? This is... This is America. This is Boston, right? We are, we are people. This is a core value for us. We have progressive values in this town. Loving everybody equally is what we're all about, right? We care about togetherness. We care about unity. But let's look again at Luke. Let's see how that story goes that Jesus tells. Right after that man asks him, who is my neighbor? Jesus says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. All right, let's stop there for just a second. So this guy is beaten, he's laying on the side of the road, and a priest and a Levite both see him and pass by on the other side of the road. Now, for us to understand the illustration Jesus is making here, we got to look back at what Luke is telling us. Luke says that this man, this lawyer, asked the question, who is my neighbor? But do you remember why he asked it? What does it say? The man was seeking to justify himself, right? He asked the question because he wanted to feel okay about himself. He asked the question because he he wanted to feel okay about the people he was caring for, to make sure that that was enough. Now, in our modern movies, in our modern TV shows, when we have a character who's like a priest or something, they're almost always the bad guy now, right? You know, priests priests are, are normally corrupt. Like, we see these religious figures in movies. You can pretty much bet that he's the guy that ends up being the bad guy at the end. You know, the religious people play those roles all the time. But back then, that was not really the point Jesus was trying to make. It was not expected that the priest and the Levite were going to be the ones that passed by. The priest and the Levite, they're not bad people. It's It's likely, in fact, that they had... Pretty good theology. Jesus wasn't the first person to say you should love your neighbor as yourself, right? That comes from the book of Leviticus. The priests and the Levite, they would have known that. But you know what else you can find in the book of Leviticus if you read through it? You'll find rules about cleanliness and and uncleanness and how if you touch somebody's blood, you might become unclean. You might make yourself so that you can't go and perform the ritual sacrifices if you're the priest or you can't assist in the temple if you're the Levite. That could be a big problem. Maybe as they walked past that guy, maybe they felt kind of bad about it. 
but they had good reasons. Maybe they could have justified passing by on the other side of the road. And then we come up to the Samaritan. And we know what happens. It says, But the Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where the beaten man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. So the Samaritan, he comes by, he sees this man, he cleans him up, he takes him to an inn, he even spends the night there with him, and in the morning, he gives money and he says, if you need any more money, I'll come back and I'll give you more. And notice the question that Jesus asks after he tells the story. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He says, which of these men proved to be a neighbor to this man? Okay, now compare this to the proverb we're studying this morning. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. I think there's a principle we got to see here. That God requires more than simply the right thinking about our neighbors. God requires something more than the right theology about who our neighbor is. It's not just the values that we need. But there is some action that's required. And that is a huge deal for us. If you're a Christian in this room, this is a huge deal. Because the sins of the church are not typically sins of commission. They're usually sins of omission. What I mean is they're not active crimes against our neighbor. But usually it's passive indifference. It's inactivity. Think of it this way. We can get worked up when we find out that our state won't let refugees come in. We can get upset about that. We can be unhappy when we see inequality, when we see injustice. Or positively, we can really love our community. We can think it's a beautiful, wonderful place. We can love the people in it. Our hearts can be filled with, with good things, a good disposition towards our community. We can have all the right thinking. But if we never do anything about it, we're just like those guys passing on the other side of the road. If we never do anything about it, we're just like those guys walking by on the other side of the street. If we never do anything, the proverb tells us that that's sin. And I want to take a step back here and make sure that I'm being clear about this, okay? Because this, this proverb, it talks about uh, this rich-poor dynamic. And, and I... I want to make sure that I'm clear that this verse is about more than just that. 
It's about more than just the rich and poor divide. Now, it is certainly about that. It's not about less than that. I don't want you to, to think it's not talking about caring for the poor. But this is just as much about us versus them. Wherever that exists. And it exists all over this community. And as much as I hate to admit it, it exists in our church. I was recently at uh, the State of Our Neighborhood meeting. Did anybody go to that? It's an annual meeting where a lot of neighborhood people and politicians come together. And, and Jeffrey Sanchez was there. He's one of our state representatives. And every year he comes, and he gives a very similar comment at some point during the evening. Uh, it's, a, it's a big group, you know, maybe 200, 300 people, uh, and a lot of, I don't know, activist types, people who really care deeply about the community, who want to see things uh, the, the poor cared for, who want to see um, lots of ways that would lead to the flourishing of our neighborhood. But every time he comes, Jeffrey points out that he represents the Bromley Heath. Now it's called the Haley Apartments. They just recently renamed it. But he, he represents that community, this huge part of Jamaica Plain and Roxbury. And he always points out how hardly anyone from that community is there. And the reason why, he says, is because as much as uh, we activist types say we care for the poor and as much as we work for the, the togetherness and connectedness of our community. He says, at the end of the day, you actually don't ever spend any time there. At the end of the day, those people don't come into your homes and you don't go into theirs. In other words, you think good thoughts, but you pass by on the other side of the road. In the church, it plays out much more subtly. In the church, we come here and we preach and we teach about loving our neighbors. And even in this room, we have people from all sorts of different backgrounds, races, ethnicities, cultures, and I'm really thankful for that. But rather than going out of our way to make this place welcoming, to people from a variety of backgrounds, rather than going away to, going out of our way to cross cultures, there are a lot of ways that we build up barriers. Where we have embraced our own certain kind of culture and we kind of force other people to fit into that. Duke Kwan is a friend of mine. He's a pastor in Washington, D.C., and this week, uh, he published a speech that he gave at our General Assembly last, last week. Um, I went to Mobile, Alabama to participate in our annual meeting, and uh, he gave a really great uh, kind of rally call <laughs> to the pastors in our denomination. And in that, he was speaking about his experience growing up as a Korean-American in a predominantly white culture. He talked about some of those challenges and what it was like. And his challenge was for our denomination and our church to try to move from what he called a white normativity to a multicultural normativity. And I know that sounds kind of scientific. It sounds a little academic, maybe. But here's how he defines it. 
And I think it makes a lot of sense. He says, multicultural normativity is this. It's when the church is a resurrection banquet hall more than a lecture hall. And occasionally, if you dare, maybe even a dance hall. Multicultural normativity rejects racial reconciliation as just a pursuit of harmony. Unless it also seeks interracial equity and mutuality. He says it's not just, he says it's not just about diversity, but it's about inclusion. And the failure of, of our church to make room. The failure of, of some of us, and I think I'm the chief of sinners here, but the failure of, of some of us to make ourselves less comfortable so other people can feel comfortable is a decision to pass by on the other side of the road. Wherever we see a them, and we make no effort to love them, wherever we see a them and we do nothing about it, we are despising our neighbor. That's what this text says. So why is that such a big deal? Why is that a big deal? Like I said, this is a value of our neighborhood. This is a value of our culture at large. But Scripture tells us that this is more than just our culture's value. This is something much bigger than that. This has nothing to do, in fact, with fitting in better (laughs) with the values of the world. This is not about us conforming ourselves to society but it's about us conforming ourselves to the Word of God. See, what our Proverbs this morning, it says that, that at the heart of this whole issue is sin. Our refusal to remove barriers. Our refusal to cross the road and proactively seek to serve and love those who are different from us, it's selfish, yes. And it's self-protecting, yes. And sometimes it's just lazy. Yeah, that's true. But what Derek Kidner says, an Old Testament scholar, what he says most importantly is, it is a rejection of the will and the blessing of God. Blessed is the man who is generous to the poor. Blessed is the woman who is generous to the poor. Do you believe that? Do you want that blessing? But the one who despises his or her neighbor, it doesn't matter if that neighbor has mistreated you first. It doesn't matter if that neighbor would call himself or he would say they're your enemy. It doesn't matter if you're despising them in an active way or in a passive way. If it's intentional or accidental. It doesn't matter if your disregard for them can be justified because you have a busy schedule and you don't have many resources. This says if you don't love your neighbor as yourself, you are living contrary to the will of God And you are guilty in his sight. That's rough. 
Because when you look at it that way, when you realize who that includes, you realize that none of us are innocent. None of us can stand up to this standard. So what are we going to do? Well, there's three things. First, we need to confess our guilt. We need to admit that whenever we have acted preferentially to people who are more like us, we've sinned. Whenever we have ignored our neighbor's needs, we've sinned. Whenever we have perpetuated systems that favor people like us over people who are not like us, we've sinned. And you know what? Whenever we just don't think about the problem, we've sinned. We're guilty before God. We have despised our neighbor. We have committed and continued injustice. And we deserve His just and righteous punishment for that. We gotta confess our guilt. We have to admit it. But the other thing we need to do is we need to look to Jesus. Because here's the thing, folks. Studying the command to love your neighbor is a lot like staring at the sun. When you stare at the sun with, without any protection on your eyes, eventually you're gonna go blind. And if you start to look at this law, if you start to understand exactly what God meant when he said, love your neighbor as yourself, if you start trying to do that on your own, you are going to be crushed. You're going to be crushed under the weight of that. But the gospel tells us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is the fulfillment of this law. Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan, right? Spiritually and, and morally, we are the man by the roadside. We are the one who is dead to rights. We are the one who is powerless. We're the ones who are lost in our sin. We have no hope to pick ourselves up or clean ourselves off or make ourselves better. But Jesus came to save us. And he didn't simply cross to the other side of the road. But he crossed all eternity. God the Son stepped into history. He took on flesh. And he didn't just give his time. He didn't simply give his money. But he gave his life. He gave every last bit that he had for you. He paid the debt that you owed. He was crushed so that you could be healed. And it tells us that wasn't all. After that, Jesus didn't just put us in an inn until we could get better and, and fix ourselves and go on our way. But it says on the cross, through his death and resurrection, he has united us to himself. He has guaranteed us an eternal home where we can be with the Father forever, a place, like we said during our call to worship, where we are going to be together with every tongue and tribe and nation, praising the glory of God. The proverb says, Blessed is he who is generous to the poor. And Paul tells us, 
Though Christ was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. When you see that law, you've got to confess your guilt. When you see your sin, you've got to confess. But then you've got to grab a hold of your Savior, because that's your only hope. You have to embrace your Savior. And then the third thing you've got to do, you need to let yourself be transformed. When you see the Gospel, folks, you can't stay the same. When the Lord opens your eyes to see that you are in sin, you can't stay the same. You can't know what that sin cost Him and then keep living in it. Folks, the only way you're ever going to be able to love in a costly way is if you realize the costly love you've gotten through Christ. But then, you got to go. You have to do. You can't just stay in the realm of theology with this, people. We actually have to walk out the doors at some point and have a conversation with someone. We actually have to be generous to those who are in need. Look, I don't want this to be my main application, but I want to say sign up for BBS, people. Eventually, you got to sacrifice something. Eventually, you've got to give. But my main invitation, my main invitation is not just to do. I want to invite you to come with me to this table. I want to invite you to be reminded of the sacrifice that has been made for you. And if you've never trusted in Christ, if you're trying to keep this law on your own, I want you to see here that the penalty for our lack of love is either His death or your death. Which one's it going to be? I want to invite you to come and receive the grace and mercy from Christ our Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Father, thank You for what You have, have given us in Jesus. Lord, thank You for the Proverbs and the, the wisdom that they have to impart to us. We admit before You that we lack wisdom, that we lack holiness and righteousness, but Lord, in the name of our great Savior, we pray that You would give it to us. Lord, that You would transform us, that You would show us how to love in a way that seems overwhelming. That You would show us how to sacrifice as You've sacrificed for us. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.